All right. It is Saturday, October 6, 2007. I'm George Jardine, and I'm here with Chris Rainier at National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. at the All Roads Film and Photography Festival, which Chris is a part of, one of the organizers. We'll talk about that in a minute. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I know this is a pretty busy festival. It is, but we're, we're getting early enough start here that's not a problem. <laughs> so um, we're going to get to the festival uh, in a few minutes and the All Roads Photography Program. But I wanted to start back and dig around a little bit in your past, your history. Um, you assisted Ansel Adams for a while. That is correct. I was very uh, fortunate in the early 80s to uh, take a workshop from him as I was finishing up school, photography school in California. And uh, without a doubt, it changed my life. Not only did I take the workshop, but we seemed to hit it off fairly well. And he uh, sort of uh, hinted at, well, what are you doing when you're uh, finishing school? And I obviously uh, pursued the hint and uh, was very much in alignment with, with his philosophies in terms of using photography as a social tool. And it was art. So I love the combination of uh, art being used as a social tool. So when I finished Brooks Institute of Photography, I was asked to come up and be one of Ansel's assistants. So the early 80s, 1980 to essentially a year after he passed away, I was uh, his assistant, photographic assistant, worked with him on a lot of photography projects, obviously, but also uh, really helping him with some of his environmental issues at that mm. time. So it began to really uh, gel in me how um, photography, whether it's photojournalism or art, could be used as a social tool. And of course, his, his mandate, his mission was conservation mm -hmm. and the preservation of natural landscape, not only in uh, America, but in his later years, a concern for a global issue of landscape. Mm -hmm. Had you been interested in photographing indigenous cultures before you went to work with Ansel? Indeed. I grew up in uh, South Africa, in Australia, uh, in Europe. My father uh, worked for an oil company. We ended up uh, living in many different parts of the world. So I put that sort of, coupled that, so to speak, with my love of landscape, love of the California landscape, Yosemite, obviously, with a concern about culture and an awareness of culture from early years of traveling. And so the two seemed to gel very well for me. How did Ansel's work influence your approach to black and white photography? Very good question. I think for me, working for Ansel was not only uh, sort of an awareness of the business of photography. Um, his mentoring was amazing. He was always, for all of his assistants, he was very uh, caring and considerate. Uh, passionate about helping us every opportunity he had to in a social context with contacts from the president of Kodak to you know people that he knew in the industry he was very generous and very helpful so no doubt that helped but I think in that whole sort of evolution as a photographer evolving and growing the mentorship ideas very strong working for a photographer that you admire so obviously I had a great deal of admiration for Ansel and I had always had a love of black and white and even to this day I see in black and white I see and visualize and pre-visualize in black and white 
Uh, one of the lucky few. <laughs> <laughs> I have a constant, you know, yellow rat and filter over my eyes. Um, for me, I think it allowed me to speak of things that were beyond the color spectrum, beyond a certain reality, and go into what I like to call magical realism. And it, for me, it gets closer to that iconic moment, that moment where a single image can go beyond the two-dimensional surface, go beyond uh, the reality of the actual situation you were taking it in, and speak of larger issues, speak of, you know, the desire to preserve the landscape in, in North America, or for me, the, the hope and dream that uh, non-Western tribal cultures around the world can preserve their culture and their landscape. So photography has a beautiful way of capturing a moment and speaking of rather complex issues, but from the heart. So it sounds like you had some other fairly considerable influences from the journalism and the documentary side. What were your influences there? Very good question again, because I think I grew up, part of the time uh, I grew up in England, and uh, my great aunt was a very, very well-known composer, and she was of the sort of Second World War generation, and her peers, her friends were some of the great artists of the 20th century in England, Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth, uh, a number of people like that. And so as a little kid, 14 years old, I'd sit around at her uh, little apartment in London, England, uh, having an opportunity to talk to some of these great artists. And of course, these artists were profoundly influenced by the Second World War, that whole era. And that, on some subconscious level, went into my brain and all of their art was driven by really a strong reaction to the possibility that we lived through in the 20th century at the Second World War of, of slipping into a, a very different sense of what mm. the world order was. So social issues have sort of been embedded in my understanding from a very early age, a love of photography. The two were completely at that time, you know, disconnected. I was wandering around taking pictures of buildings and flowers and, you know, soft focus filters and doing all of that. So the two ideas were very abstract as, as it related to putting them together. But so slowly through my teens, it began to start coming together. And I mm. started, you know, jumping into books of photography, looking at Robert Kappa's work, uh, looking at Jim Nakwe's work, uh, all of those kind of artists of the 19, late 1970s into the 80s. And then one of the great things about working for Ansel at that time in Carmel, California, was the Friends of Photography. You may recall that organization that Ansel and a number of other photographers started, and that was based in Carmel. So they had a very powerful workshop program. So who was coming through, you know, every couple of months, but Jim Nakwe, Gene Richards, Mary Ellen Mark, uh, Linda Connor, Richard uh, Mishirak. So I was getting, in a way, getting a PhD in photography. So my head would often spin because I'd sit down with Ansel and talk ideas and social issues. And then the next week would meet Mary Ellen Mark or Richard mm. Avedon. So it was a, an incredible catalytic time for me to to go I can take the professional degree that I got from Brooks, which was essentially how to make a living from photography, and combine it with a passion of art, 
and then sprinkle it with this issue of it can be a socially driven sort of agenda. And somehow or another it all came together and I suddenly, the light bulb went off one day and said, this is the path I want to take. Wow. Sounds like a pretty terrific confluence of inf- of influences. Yes, I felt very honored. It was a, a very special moment. And I, I think one of the biggest things I learned from Ansel, too, was the concept of mentoring. So it's very important to me now in my point in my career is to sort of get out of the way, not have so much energy towards you know promoting my career, keeping the, down that path, but really be involved in mentoring, teaching, and uh, mentoring photographers around the world. Well, there's a whole subject about carrying forward a tradition in photography. Exactly. I just got into a little bit last week with Steve McCurry, but uh, it's a subject that um, perhaps one day I'll do a whole series on. Yeah, and I think it is fascinating because in talking to a lot of photographers, there's a point where, you know, pushing the, the boulder uphill you sort of hit a, not a plateau, but you hit a point where the momentum is sufficient that you can put it on autopilot, so to speak, and shift the energy towards giving back and uh, creating an atmosphere within photography that it's not all about holding on to secrets, but in fact, it's the opposite. It's really about opening up the possibility of other people being involved. And in the end, that helps photography just mm-hmm, to pass mm-hmm. it on and be open and honest and, and share. And especially in this time where we're going this, through this amazing transition in photography from traditional to digital, uh, you know, the democratization of visual information in terms of cell phone cameras and you know, little digital cameras, everybody is taking pictures. So that shouldn't be a place that photographers come from in terms of fear, but in terms of excitement. That what an amazing possibility that we're all telling visual stories. I'm really glad you made that little transition in the conversation for me because I didn't really want to talk about tools. Right. But something seemed to have happened in the digital revolution that caused photographers to really start getting together and sharing information. Yes. And I'm not quite sure how all those pieces fit together. You know, the Internet was part of it, the digital revolution part of it but uh, certainly is a different time than it was when we started out 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely, and my perspective of looking at it is is definitely, obviously, what's going on here in North America, Canada, the United States, and Europe, but beyond the Ethernet, beyond sort of the typical array of what we call the West, and and in areas around the world. You know, I'm able to now go online and, and search and discover people in Africa, people in Asia, people throughout the South Pacific, photographers in India. And that was unimaginable 10 years ago. And, you know, what is the second wave and the third wave to that is people begin to communicate and the information goes back and forth. We live in an incredible kind of revolution, very much like the Industrial Revolution. And and visual information is a key component to that revolution. I guess as long as we're getting around to the uh, the global perspective, we might as well talk about All Roads. What can you tell me about the festival and how you got involved in it? Well, back in uh, approximately 2001, I was asked by National Geographic to come on board and to really promote the idea and focus, help focus not only the society, but the media outlets within the society about culture, about tribal, indigenous, non-Western uh, finding the appropriate word is always so hard in a in a PC world that we live in. But certainly, 
cultures that are not Western, uh, out in Asia and Africa and all sorts of places like that. So it was an initiative, a cultures initiative, which was to really kind of expand the idea of what culture meant. And so we started a number of different directions. And what we really wanted to focus on was gatherings of storytellers, visual storytellers, filmmakers, photographers, musicians, uh, people that uh, could tell stories. And I think our whole history, the history of mankind, is, is really in the essence storytelling. I mean, the Bible, the Quran, you know, Tibetan scriptures, so many parts of our spiritual life are based upon storytelling. And, you know, we were scrawling on caves thousands and thousands of years ago. So that component, the visual component, has always been fascinating to me, is how do people tell stories either in still images or visually around the world? So we started what's called the All Roads Film and Photography Festival. And it's now in its fourth year, and we're having our fourth uh, festival right now here in Washington, D.C. And we gather... Um, photographers from all over the world and we nominate them and uh, we have four photographers and the criteria is that they can't submit they're nominated so I have a group of advisors around the world and you met some of them yesterday uh, people from Bangladesh and Australia and South Africa uh, South America and they they look through local communities they go to universities they search out photographers that are beyond the typical array of world press or any opportunities that they might have to jump on board the Western media. And these are people that are working within their community that are really talented photographers. They may be established in their community or even in their country, but they don't have access to all that we have here in the West. And so we have this nominating committee. They submit their portfolios, and then we have a different selection committee, and out of the hundred or so photographers, we pick four. And that is always very difficult because they're all imagine. extraordinarily talented, and they get a lot of great benefits. Adobe has helped, Epson, a number of companies have thrown in camera equipment. Print, uh, printers, software, and they get a grant. And then we sort of do a mentoring program for about a year. We bring them into different universities and festivals, not only here in the States, but around the world, and really kind of create a, an opportunity for them to grow, connect with Western media, connect with galleries and museums here. And it sort of jumpstarts them into a global perspective. And one of the big keys is building them a website. So people can literally just go in, type their name, and there they have their portfolio. So it's a very exciting program. It's only four years old. It's very much expanding. Uh, and the other exciting thing is when bringing in with bringing in the filmmakers and musicians and storytellers, they all begin to connect. So you have a, a African drummer talking to a photographer from Borneo through the internet and starting to create this kind of global mm -hmm. uh, dialogue of being storytellers. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it sounds like a fabulous opportunity. Yeah. So do you want to talk just a little bit about how these filmmakers from other countries are able to give you a different perspective on their own cultures? Absolutely. I think we really, now at the beginning of the 21st century, live in an era where uh, it's, it's not inappropriate. I won't use that word because I think it's always important to be able to travel the world and have Western perspectives of the world. But 
that has exclusively been the domain of white photographers throughout the 20th century. We go and we travel to other places in the world and tell other people's stories. And so we have a Western bias. We have a, a romantic notion of what the monks in Tibet carrying their bowls look like or, or the lion sitting in the savanna in East Africa. But what about a Maasai photographer? How would he photograph that lion sitting there in Maasai Mara? Or a Tibetan, you know, who is very talented. We had a, ta uh, a Tibetan photographer a couple years ago. How would his perspective be in terms of photographing his own backyard? I always use the analogy, if we're sitting around our backyard one Sunday afternoon and suddenly a Chinese, Japanese, or Guatemalan photographer showed up taking photographs of our backyard. Well, that's exactly, yeah, that's where I really wanted to take it because... And then they take their photographs back and suddenly there's a spread in some wonderful magazine that says this is how, you know, the people in, in New York or Washington or California live. And it tends to be a very sort of, I won't say superficial, but a very peripheral view of the reality of that world. I think we're now at that point with global communication and the technology to be able to talk to people that that's no longer appropriate. Hmm. What's fine is I can travel to Tibet or New Guinea or places like that and tell my perspective of that culture and only my perspective. This is my interpretation of that culture. That's fine. But also let's engage their stories and let's start sharing those stories and that's to me what it's all about is that's when it gets exciting that's when we really start taking it up onto another level and photography is that catalyst it's a vehicle it's an opportunity to communicate and then get to that issue of let's solve some of these world issues like poverty and you know overpopulation and diseases and things like that and photography that's the cool thing about photography. It can be a part of that process, but doesn't have to all be images of doom and gloom. You see some of these photographers here, Ayin from Mongolia, stunningly beautiful, regal photographs of uh, the Mongolian traditional nomadic mm -hmm. culture. It's a celebration to look at his images. It's a way of bringing awareness to the whole world of, exactly. of those cultures. Exactly. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not trying to, to say it's inappropriate for Steve McCurry to go to Afghanistan and take stunningly beautiful images of, you know, refugees with green eyes. I think that will inevitably turn out as one of the great iconic images of our lifetime and certainly the 20th century. So all the power to, to Western photographers to travel the world and, and take stunningly beautiful images. But there's other voices to hear as well. Sure. So getting back to um, some of the ways in which you've interpreted the different cultures in the world, um, your book Ancient Marks has been a, a particular inspiration for me. And, and by the way, um, my cousin is uh, 17, just graduated high school, studying photography in Washington State. I gave her a copy of the book, and she told me a few months later how much her friends at the local university love coming into her dorm room and <laughs> checking out the tattoos. It seems like it's, it's... And they all went off to the tattoo parlor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her dad was going to kill me. Right. <laughs> really fascinating book. How did you get started on this idea? 
Well, I had just finished a book on New Guinea, and I'd spent almost 10 years uh, traveling to New Guinea constantly and photographing sort of the last tribes, Stone Age tribes, so to speak, of New Guinea. And what I began to see there was a lot of uh, tattooing and scarification as an initiation ritual. And then as I was finishing that book, I would come back to America And I suddenly saw in sort of the mid-90s a huge explosion of tattooing going on in our culture. Mm. It was showing up everywhere. And I thought, so interesting. You've got the tribal tradition that's thousands of years old. And suddenly something is beginning to shift in modern culture that we need to express ourselves that way. Is there a correlation? Is there a connection? And so I really sort of set off to follow the flow of ink around the world, so to speak. And I spent eight years going most continents, certainly everywhere that there was tribal traditional tattooing, but as well as contemporary tattooing. So I went to Burning Man Festival, gangs in East LA, gangs in the Philippines and in Europe, modern sort of strip mall kind of tattoo parlors, and wanted to draw a correlation between what I was seeing in a traditional way, tribal way and modern culture. And I, it was very interesting to find the results. I think, you know, certainly the traditions within tribal culture is initiation, going from childhood to adulthood, adulthood into warriorhood. Uh, and that's so too for females. A lot of uh, cultures, the Polynesian culture, the Maori culture, women are tattooed even more than men. Hmm. Uh, but what about modern culture? What's that all about? It's easy to kind of uh, sort of throw it off and say, well, it's just youth and they're trying to express themselves. But I think something deeper there in terms of a desire in a in a time where religion doesn't seem to kind of put a context and a meaning and an understanding, people are in search of meaning, of context, of belonging to something, wanting to go through some initiation ritual. So in a modern pop culture, this is one of the th- the ways to do it, sort of appropriate other traditions. So the very strong ones are the Celtic uh, traditions, Borneo, you know, you see people with nose plugs or ear plugs or, or taking some of the Polynesian, the beautiful Polynesian tattooing and doing these amazing patterns, or even the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia, doing these beautiful colored patterns down arms. So there's a lot of appropriation, but there's also a lot of you know, in the hundreds and hundreds of interviews that I did for the book, there's a lot of desire to uh, uh, connect it to something meaningful in their life. So the book was really an exploration, and I chose to do it in black and white, though certainly with the Yakuza and other cultures, certain other cultures, it's very colorful. But for me, color photography still is based in reality. It, it, it becomes color as content. And I don't feel like I'm a mature color photographer. I do a lot of assignments for National Geographic. I used to do a lot of work for Time Magazine and Condé Nast Traveler. So I know how to do color. But in terms of my own personal statement, I am not as a mature color photographer as I am as a black and white shooter. So I felt like I wanted to do the message in black and white. And and again, take it to that kind of iconic level where, yes, you're looking at a person, an environmental portrait, but it's speaking of things that are a lot deeper in terms of the universal desire to belong and and go through some sort of initiation ritual. Wow. Long-winded answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I find um, 
I find the variation between why certain cultures tattoo themselves to be quite interesting. For instance, the Yakuza, uh, it's considered something the normal population just wouldn't do. Yes, absolutely. But in the States, it's exactly the opposite. It's sort of the the hip teenage thing to do. Absolutely. And not only teenagers. I mean, I remember vividly about eight years ago going to a meeting at the American Museum of Natural History and very conservative curator, a woman was sitting there and I was showing her the images for a possible exhibit and she says, oh, tattooing. She pulls up her arm and she's got this huge Chinese dragon all the way up her arm. She says, yeah, I had some Chinese tattoo artists do this in China and it's incredible, you know. And then she rolls down her sleeve and she turns into the kind of librarian looking (laughs) curator and I was like, everywhere, it's pervasive it's absolutely pervasive and and it's a great art form because you can roll down your sleeve and go back to you know being the 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 banker or the lawyer or whatever it's sort of like the harley davison guy on the weekend that you can have this double life and it can have some meaning and i think for a lot of people it 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 allows them to express something that they can't express in any other way in their life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of an interesting combination there. You know, the interesting backwash to all of this is in the early sort of period of that explosion of tattooing, a lot of the tattoo magazines would actually take journeys to some of these cultures, Borneo, Polynesia with the Maoris, and do whole photo stories, publish them, and then tattoo artists began to copy the exact sure. patterns. So someone would get an amazing tattoo and go, oh, wow, I want to go to New Zealand and sort of connect and commune. And people would arrive, and the Maoris and, and many different cultural groups were highly offended because they had their family clan on mm. the, their arm. And so there was a huge backlash sort of halfway through my project that I'd arrive in certain areas and they had they had wanted to have nothing to do with being photographed. They were highly offended to the whole project because they had started seeing people showing up with their exact form. So there's been a real evolution and responsibility within sort of tattoo artists and tattoo magazines not to to replicate, not to take photographs in a certain way. And it sort of has all died down, but it was interesting sort of how media can bounce around the world in that way and affect even traditional tattooing. Sure. I hadn't thought of that. Were you tempted to get a tattoo in the process? I am about to get a tattoo. My my wife and I, and my wife was very involved in the project, said that at the end of the project, we would sort of explore what kind of tattoo and who to be the specific artist. And there's an amazing tattoo artist out in uh, French Polynesia that we met. And the wonderful thing about the Polynesians is they look at the body as an art form. We in the West tend to kind of splotch in here and, you know, this tattoo over there, and we kind of look like this graffiti wall, whereas the Polynesians look at the body, whether a woman or a man, and see it as a piece of sculpture that you would walk around and design the pattern in such a way that it looks beautiful or powerful, all in different perspectives as you kind of Mm. engage a human. So that's coming up. We're doing a trip really soon to to that part of the world to to both get a tattoo. Wow. Well, that's a really great way to go about it. I mean, after all the different angles and perspectives you've had on the art, to finally settle down and make a decision about your own tattoo, I think, is is a great way to do it. I uh, 
And it's a big decision. I mean, it's oh, there yeah. forever and ever sort of thing. Sure. So you want to, you know, make sure. I, I saw a New Yorker cartoon about uh, five years ago, and it's this kind of sailor sitting down, and he's getting yet another tattoo, and he has, I love semicolon and he's got about a dozen women's name and you know all 11 are crossed out and he's adding a new one. Oh, that's fabulous uh, well chris thank you so much for sitting down and spending a little time talking about your career and about all roads and national geographic thank it's you been, very much george it's, it's been, been a, a real honor this conversation thank you thanks very much